Thanks, Cam. Um, I'm enjoying hearing all this talk of spring weather this morning. Um, we woke up to basically snow globe conditions in Calgary. So um, I am looking forward to the day when winter actually ends in Alberta and we actually get to experience some of the spring that you are talking about. Um, and as I was looking through the chat this morning, I had this thought of, I don't know that I need to speak this morning. Um, the comments in the chat were so good. The songs were so applicable um, to the passages that we're looking at. Um, but I am really excited to share with you this morning. Um, being connected to Southside um, over the last couple months has been such a gift. Um, and so it has been mentioned, we are continuing this morning to look at transformative encounters that the followers of Jesus had with him after his resurrection. And we'll be looking primarily at the story of Jesus when he appears to the disciples in a locked room on the evening of the resurrection. But before we get there, I want to back up the story a bit. As we heard last week, before appearing to the disciples in this locked room, two followers of Jesus had an encounter with him on the road to Emmaus. Following that encounter, these two followers went back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they had seen. But before that, earlier in the day, there's another follower that has an encounter with Jesus. And in John 20, verses 1 through 18, we read that now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place all by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes but mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stood and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Um, so Mary's story wasn't originally part of the plan for this week. Um, but as I was starting to prepare to talk um, about the verses that will follow, I couldn't help but be stopped by the story of Mary. Um, and maybe it's because for about two months, a number of years ago, um, 
I was known to the British government as Sarah Mary because somebody hadn't double checked my passport before sending it out. So briefly, I shared a name with Mary. Um, but mostly, it's because of the way Jesus interacts with her here and in the earlier encounters that he has with Mary Magdalene. When Jesus first encounters Mary Magdalene, she's not in a great place, like his initial encounters with many of his disciples. In Mark and Luke, we are told that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She is identified in all of the gospels as a follower of Jesus and is present at key moments in his story. Mary is an unlikely figure to have such a prominent place in some of the key moments of Jesus's life. And I think that is one of the reasons why I love that she is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Her life is messy when she first meets Jesus. But in that first meeting, her life is deeply transformed and she follows the one who has healed her and given her new life. And when she sees Jesus for the first time on that resurrection morning, not only is she the first, but when she does, he calls her by name. She is seen, known, and loved for who she is. And N.T. Wright notes that the importance of this encounter um, is that if someone in the first century had wanted to invent a story about people seeing Jesus, they wouldn't have dreamed of giving the star part to a woman, let alone Mary Magdalene. And Mary's story of transformation and her pursuit of Jesus gives me such hope for my own story. It reminds me of the ways Jesus has healed and transformed different spaces of my own life. And it reminds me that I can know Jesus intimately and that I am known by him. And like Mary, there is a place for me with the other believers. So Mary, having had this early morning encounter with Jesus, rushes to find the rest of the disciples and tell them what Jesus told her and that she has seen him. And we find her, the followers from Emmaus and the rest of the disciples together in a locked room. As they are meeting together, likely eating together and trying to wrap their heads around these seemingly unbelievable stories they've heard about the resurrected Jesus, and likely everything else that has happened over the previous few days, suddenly Jesus is standing in the room with them. And so as we've heard it read, I'm in John 19, um, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And I invite you to take a moment to picture yourself in that scene, to picture yourself as one of the disciples. I think if I was one of the people in that room, um, I would wonder if I wasn't starting to see things. Uh, it had been a really tough few days with a lot of intense emotions. This man that I had followed um, and who was at minimum a great teacher that had performed many signs and wonders, but knowing he was likely way more than that, he had died. And now I've just heard stories from others saying that they have seen Jesus and then there he is. 
I think I would be wondering if I so longed for the resurrection to be true that I was convincing myself that I was also seeing Jesus. And I think that because Jesus is good, gracious, and kind, and likely very aware that his appearance is going to be shocking to many of those gathered, his first words to his followers in this room are, peace be with you. He could have rebuked them for their unfaithfulness and cowardice the previous weekend, but he didn't. Not only did Jesus come to them, but he reassured them. His first words to them was a traditional greeting, shalom, peace. He showed them his wounded hands and side and gave them opportunity to discover that it was indeed their master and he was not a phantom. By showing them the nail prints in his hands and the spear wound in his side, Jesus removed any doubt that they had that the one who stood before them in the locked room was Jesus crucified, but now risen from the dead. And back in chapter 16 of John, Jesus predicts that the disciples' sorrow at his death would be turned to joy following his resurrection. And so now in this space, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And I don't imagine that would have been a calm scene at all. Jesus is standing in the room with them. They can see, hear, and touch him. I imagine a flood of emotions in that moment, all the pain, fear, anger, sadness, desperation, and hopelessness of the past few days, transforming into awe and wonder and joy. And as I was thinking of an example in my own life that might begin to compare to this, um, the best thing I could think of was um, around last year, early summer, um, after the first round of lockdowns, when things started to lift and you could see people in person again and being able to meet up with a friend in person outside and seeing them who for months had only been on a screen or you'd only talk to them on the phone, to see them in person, the joy that was in that moment and the number of times that we both comment during that visit on how nice it was to see somebody in 3D um, and this hope and joy. And I don't think that even begins to compare to the joy and relief um, that the disciples would have been feeling in that moment. And then in the midst of this cacophony of joy, Jesus speaks again to his disciples, peace be with you. I can't help but picture a smile on Jesus' face as he says it again, surrounded by these men and women who have been part of his ministry over the last few years. And we need to be reminded that the peace Jesus brings is so much more than the ideas our world tends to think of when we talk about peace. The biblical view of peace is not just an absence of hostility or strife. And while that is part of it, it is so much more and it is a sense of wholeness. It is something deep that we can feel in the core of who we are, even if the troubles around us don't quickly go away. Have you ever met someone who in the midst of a tough, seemingly hopeless situation just exudes peace? They're likely somebody you want to be around all the time because you feel at peace when you are with them. There is peace in the presence of Jesus, the one who has reconciled man to God. And after the second greeting of peace, Jesus has a word of commissioning for his followers. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He breathes on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
in three short verses, Jesus commissions his disciples to join in on the mission he had received from the Father. He invites them to receive the Holy Spirit, the companion that he's already promised to leave them with multiple times in John, and he commissions them to continue in the work of forgiveness. Jesus starts this commission by identifying himself with his father as the father sent me. By identifying himself with the father, he is telling his disciples by whose authority he has done and is doing his work. Throughout the gospel of John, we often see the theme of Jesus being sent into the world by the father. Jesus is sent to do the father's will, to speak his father's words, to perform his father's works, and win salvation for all who believe. Jesus hints at various places in the gospel that the disciples are sent to continue his works and words. Jesus urged them to lift up their eyes and see fields ripe for harvest and told them he had sent them to reap where others had labored. He said those who believed in him would do the works he had done and greater works than these because he was returning to the father. He told them, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last saying that when the counselor comes, the Holy Spirit, he will testify about me and you must also testify for you have been with me from the beginning. And when he prays for his disciples in John 17, he says to the father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And this last text, which parallels the one we're looking at, confirms that the sending of the disciples was into the world. There was a mission to the world. And with these words, Jesus is inviting and commissioning the disciples to continue the mission that was given to him by his father. They were sent with his authority as his representatives to preach, teach, and do miraculous signs. And I think that one of the beautiful pieces of this commission is that it is not dependent on the authority of the disciples or the perfectness of their lives. In the days leading up to the death of Christ, some of the disciples did not appear to be very faithful to him. In the garden, when he asks them to keep watch, they fall asleep. Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times. And the list of their humanness could go on. And it must have given the disciples great joy to realize that in spite of their many failures, their Lord was entrusting them with his word and his work. They had forsaken him and fled. But now he was sending them out to represent him. And this is not just good news for the disciples. It is also good news for us. I think that many, if not all of us, have had times when we can identify with the faults of the disciples. But that didn't disqualify them from participating in God's mission, and neither does it disqualify us. And what is this mission of the Father that we are now to be a part of carrying out? This could be a whole sermon on its own, but I think there are a couple ways it can be summed up. Jesus was sent by his Father in a mission of restoration and redemption. During his short years of ministry, he modeled his father's heart for the world. In John 4, Jesus reads these words of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus fought oppressive systems and spent time with the marginalized that the religious leaders of the day had decided we're not good enough to know the goodness of God. But Jesus also came to invite others to join him in this kingdom work. And in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible to have a full relationship with his Father and his disciples, and now us. We're called to take this message of hope into the world around us. So Jesus not only offers peace to his disciples, he commissions them. He trusts them to plant his church. One minute they are locked away in fear. The next they are filled with the spirit, propelled out and trusted with the most important task on earth. And this takes us to verse 22, where Jesus gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this second point is tied so closely with the commissioning of the disciples. Um, again, N.T. Note, and he Wright notes that the point of receiving the Holy Spirit is not to give the disciples new spiritual experiences, nor is it to set them apart from ordinary people, a sort of holier-than-thou club. The point is so that they can do in and for the world what Jesus had been doing in Israel. Jesus' mission to Israel, reaching its climax in his death and resurrection, is thus to be implemented by the disciples' mission to the world. That's why they need the Holy Spirit, Jesus' breath, God's breath to enable them to do the job they could otherwise never dream of doing. And the same is true for us. There is a sense of the spirit giving life as well as the gift of God's authority. This breath of life is reminiscent of the creation story in Genesis. And it is fitting that on the evening of the new creation's first day, this resurrection day, a different wind sweeps through the room where the disciples are gathered. The words for wind breath and spirit are the same. This wind is the healing breath of God's spirit come to undo the long effects of primal rebellion in the new creation. The restoring life of God is breathed out through Jesus, making new people of the disciples and through them offering this new life to the world. This giving of the Holy spirit will empower the disciples in the mission that Jesus is passing on to them. It is also completion of the promise, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus would not leave them alone. He doesn't say to his disciples, you've been part of my life for the last few years. You've seen the miracles I've done, the healings that have happened, the lives that have been transformed. And now I want you to try and replicate that on your own. Not even close. In John 14, verses 16 through 18, Jesus tells them, and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in this verse and in our verse in John 20, Jesus is reminding the disciples that they aren't doing this mission alone. They don't need to come up with new ways of doing things. They are not to become Lone Ranger Christians who then have the potential to cause more harm than good because they are working out of their own power. Instead, Jesus is very clearly reminding them that the mission they are doing is connected to the heart of the Father for his world, and they can only do it with the awareness and the power of the Holy Spirit with them. And this has been a challenge to me um, over this past week as I've considered the things that God has called me to, and I think that God has called us to, so corporately and as individuals, Am I, are we, relying on the Holy Spirit for our authority to do them? And the final line in this passage could maybe cause some confusion about what the mission of the disciples and therefore our mission is. 
And so I want to take some time on it. Jesus says these words to his disciples. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And I'll admit that I struggled a bit when I first read those lines. My mind immediately goes to ways that statement could be used in a way that deeply hurts people and elevates this speaker of forgiveness to a seemingly superior status. However, as I studied more, it seems that the consensus largely is that John 20, 23, um, Jesus is not giving to a select body of people the right to forgive sins and let people into heaven. Um, in other words, the disciples don't provide forgiveness. They proclaim forgiveness on the basis of the message of the gospel. And all that Christians can do is announce the message of forgiveness. God performs the miracle of forgiveness. If sinners will believe on Jesus Christ, we can, have author we can authoritatively declare to them that their sins have been forgiven. But we are not the ones who provide the forgiveness. And this supports the view that the way in which the disciples forgive sins and retain sins is by preaching the good news and declaring the effects of believing it, forgiveness, and rejecting it, no forgiveness. This understanding of this verse takes us out of the place of judge as Christians. And as part of this commission to join with Jesus on mission, we have the privilege of announcing heaven's terms on how a person can receive forgiveness. When it's put that way, this line feels like such an honor. We get to tell the people the story of Jesus, we get to tell them about the importance of what he did on the cross and show them the forgiveness of sins that is part of living in relationship with our resurrected Jesus. And as we finish this morning um, and prepare to be sent out as representatives of Jesus in our communities, um, there are some final points and questions that I wanted to leave us with. We started off by looking at the disciples in the locked room. They are surprised to see the risen Jesus even though they have just heard stories from people that they trusted that they had experienced being in his presence. And I wondered if there are any barriers in my life that are preventing me from having my own transformative experience with the resurrected Jesus. Is it because I haven't heard other stories about Jesus or am I holding out for my own? And while it's good to want our own experiences, do I maybe need to step out in faith based on the witness of others? And if I have experienced this resurrection power, this transformative moment with Jesus, am I telling others about it? And we're also reminded today and going into this week that Jesus speaks peace. Jesus calls Mary by name. And when he enters the locked room, he speaks words of peace twice. Jesus speaks peace in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dark and difficult times. We can trust in the peace that Jesus brings. Is there a situation in your life where you need to experience that peace? Are there places in my life, in your life, that I've locked some doors out of fear of what I think Jesus or others might say? That Jesus actually wants to break through, speak peace into, and offer transformation. If there is, I'd encourage you to enter into one of the prayer rooms today at the end of the gathering. We're also reminded of our relationship to the Father. Whatever God has asked you to do, remember that your authority comes from God and Jesus has demonstrated by words and actions how to accomplish the job he has given you. We are a continuation of the story of God's redemptive mission to the world and we need to keep coming back to the Father. And we don't engage in this mission alone. 
as followers of Jesus, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's not always something we talk a lot about in our churches, but we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, and again, if this is something that you would like prayer for, um, I would encourage you to join in one of the prayer rooms at the end of the gathering. And finally, we don't have to be perfect to engage in God's mission. Even the disciples, the people who were closest to Jesus, didn't always get it right. And I wonder what the disciples might have expected Jesus to say to them if he really was back. Was he angry, disappointed, ashamed of them? If you are experiencing fear or shame of something you've done, picture Jesus standing before you now, simply saying, peace be with you. Imagine the expression on his face as he says this to you. And as we close, I'd invite you to pray this yielding prayer with me. Lord, as I breathe in now, I receive afresh your Holy Spirit. As I breathe out, I relinquish my fears, doubts, and worries. I receive your peace, identity, and authority. <laughs> 